It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Tony Greer is the founder of TG Macro, an independent research firm that provides thought-provoking, insightful market analysis to institutional and retail clients alike. Tony has been trading for 30 years, initially at Sumitomo Bank in 1992, as a quantum fund bet against the Bank of England before really honing his craft at Goldman Sachs after a two-year spell at UBS from 1995. We discussed the Great Rotation, a term coined by Tony to define the fundamental pivot away from big technology stocks, the darlings of investor portfolios for the past decade, into hard assets. Tony identifies the tailwinds bolstering the long-term performance of natural gas, oil and commodities, a trend he expects is very much here to stay. Enjoy. Welcome, Tony. It's great to have you on the show. So whereabouts are you speaking to us from? In Hawaii, I am in Atlantic Beach, Long Island, which is a barrier island sort of off the southern coast of Long Island. Very nice. Uh, we are based in the city of London, so near Liverpool Street. I'm not sure whether you're familiar with it, but uh, a lot less exotic and, and nice than, than, than your setting, I'm sure. True, but I am familiar with it. I spent a lot of time in London while I was with Goldman Sachs, and I always thought of it as the center of the universe, and it's still one of my favorite cities on the planet. So I do know a little bit about what you're talking about. Yeah, fantastic. All right, so I'm going to start with a question that won't necessarily flow chronologically, but it will give listeners an early indication of one of the uh, focuses of today's interview. And I heard you discuss the great rotation on a couple of different outlets, most recently on Dmitry Kofanas' podcast. So can you briefly explain this phenomenon to our listeners, and then we'll get back and dig into it later on? Absolutely. Okay, so the great rotation, as I define it mathematically, and I have it as a actual security created that I follow rather closely, is um, the Bloomberg Commodities Index, which is a basket of commodities, mostly energy and precious metals and grains. Um, that commodities index divided by the price of the triple Q, which is the NASDAQ. So the great rotation to me is what we're, I think, going to see for the next, man, maybe five or 10 years where the market is going to be dramatically different and value dramatically different securities than it has valued for the last 15 or 20 years. Um, that stems from the view that, well, from the evidence that, you know, over the last 15 to 20 years, we have been living in a very technology-driven economy where um, that has been had an extraordinarily deflationary effect on the economy. And markets have reflected that, right? Um, this deflationary effect has made it possible for central banks to keep yields, um, you know, near zero or around zero, keep liquidity flowing and try to keep their economies, you know, humming along at, at whatever pace they're trying to attain. And that got portfolio managers and individual investors alike 
positioned for that kind of thing where they would be, you know, long a lot of technology in their portfolio. Obviously, you know, the most famous stocks in the world, the Fang Complex is a is a huge ownership, both institutionally and at a retail level, with you know, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google being among the most popular stocks in the tech sector. So um, everybody has been long all those names. They've seen some of their finest moments, in my opinion, during the lockdown, when you know, obviously, you know, a lot of citizens around the world were unable to go about their business, but were rather at home um, by decree and you know, kind of getting on by using you know the basics, Facebooks to communicate with people and get news from, and Apple to you know they're on their phones all day and they're shopping on Amazon and entertaining themselves on Netflix and searching on Google. So what happened was these these names after the lockdown had you know a big big last rush of big huge rally in the last sort of call year and a half coming out of the lockdown. Mm. Then what happened is we ran into a situation where um, we dramatically changed U.S. energy policy with the Biden administration taking office. You know, and that began on day one, and you can draw a straight line to the inflationary effects that it's had on, you know, mainly on you know the economy, but mainly focused in the energy sector. As the Biden administration's big play is to transfer, you know, the country away from fossil fuels and towards electronic powered vehicles, electric powered vehicles, and for that we need a massive battery powered infrastructure um, that is going to require a lot of metal, a lot of industrial metal, base metal, and rare earth metals. So the global economy is going from being driven by fossil fuels, you know, WTI crude oil, gas oil, jet fuel, Mm. gasoline, natural gas, to the transition toward being driven, which most of this comes, you know, a lot of these, which the U.S. is extraordinarily powerful in, right? We we were self-sufficient during the Trump administration, um, totally energy independent. And that had that is in the process of becoming reversed as sort of, you know, we see the source of our energy to our enemies and, you know, countries that don't like us very much. So this transition is having an effect on portfolios because as it has sort of dramatically taken effect with the implication of U.S. energy policy that spiked energy prices right into the Russia-Ukraine conflict with the overlay of the supply chain crisis. And all of a sudden, we have a scenario where hard assets and commodities are in structural supply, lack of supply-driven bull markets. And so now we've got this situation where we are at the all-time highs in a lot of commodities like base metals and aluminum and, and near the highs in copper, et cetera, et cetera. We've got oil, you know, pressing the highs, um, historic highs that we've seen back into the 120s now today. Um, and we've got grain prices going completely berserk. So this is the physical side of that hard asset rally that I'm talking about. What I've seen is, you know, the unbelievable performance of the Bloomberg Commodities Index has held the central bank's hands to the fire to the point that they've now got to begin some kind of a realm of tightening. So to close it all up, Aiden, I think the the right way to look at the great rotation is now how portfolios are going to start valuing energy stocks, commodity stocks, ag producers, and things like that a lot differently and a lot higher than they had been valuing them. 
And I think stocks like, you know, the FANG stocks, which we've kind of, the market has been shooting those generals one by one, mm. have seen their finest moments and will now have to see a rotation out of them in certain times that will be sort of sometimes painful and sometimes sort of orderly. And the painful part is probably going to take place because they are so widely held. They're held institutionally, they're held by passive investment ETFs, and they're held by, you know, the retail investor in mass across the board. So, you know, I think we've seen the beginning of this, you know, the, the, the sort of great rotation as I define it with, you know, the NASDAQ, call it, the, you know, FANG stocks off 30% year to date, the NASDAQ off 22% year to date, firmly in a bear market that I believe will continue. And the Bloomberg Commodities Index up 34% year to date um, with a really, really dramatic supply side problem on its hands right now. And so hopefully that defines a little bit about the way that I think the market is going to rotate with this great rotation. And, and, and please ask questions if I haven't sufficiently explained it. No, I, I think that's a really great overview. Uh, and I will dig into a few points more Sure. Kind of namely, I suppose, how that affects investors, how investors might want to position their portfolios kind of within that environment. I think we can get to that later on. I think now would be a good time to circle back and cover some of your career history, I suppose, and introduce you to the listeners. And I did a bit of reading uh, around your career history to date before the call. Uh, I read that you graduated from Cornell University in 1990, uh, following your father's footsteps into a job on Wall Street, I believe. You kind of noted that you quickly learned that that exact career path wasn't for you. So why was that? Um, let's see. Well, what I did learn was that the path into trading was for me. I think there may be you know, a story, uh, there might be some confusion with uh, maybe what went on later in my life where the path wasn't exactly for me. That's kind of when I transitioned into TG Macro um, and launched my own um, business because early on in my career, I was really, really uh, excited to, to finally land a job you know, on a trading desk, which is where I wanted to start out, despite people, you know, saying that that was going to be too tall of an order. Um, but I got a job in, you know, foreign exchange at Sumitomo Bank, and that turned into a job at, you know, foreign exchange at UBS that turned into an opportunity to trade precious metals and FX in Zurich in their head treasury office. Um, which was a really great opportunity. And that led to, you know, getting to know other counterparties in the market, like Goldman Sachs, who became a very big one at UBS. Um, and then my eventual transition um, to working for them. And uh, kind of like I've said, that's where I learned everything that I know about commodity trading. So that's, that's the, uh, you know, that's how I define the first half of my career. I spent about six years at J. Aaron, which is the commodity trading, private commodity trading arm at Goldman Sachs at the time. And um, I, I ran and helped run various different books there, such as the Gold Book um, in the Precious Metals Desk and the Goldman Sachs Commodities Index, um, which was a basket of 22 commodities, basically world production weighted. Um, so all of that experience has given me the foundation of the tools and the network that I use today to follow what's going on in this market and track it very carefully. So I think that gets us you know, to the point of my career where Goldman Sachs went public and I had been invested in technology stocks um, for several years. You know, I was a big music fan. And as soon as I could you know, load my, my music collection onto my um, you know, Sony Walkman, I was able to do that. And I kind of got was pretty keen to invest in a lot of things in the tech space. And so now all of a sudden, you know, at, at, the, at the turn of the century, Y2K, 
Um, Goldman Sachs has gone public. I've got a really big nest egg that I've accumulated from investing in tech stocks. And I get to learn one of the ultimate lessons of my life, whereby I left Goldman Sachs because I thought that my participation and the money that I made um, being long technology was because of brains and not because of a bull market. And I walked face first into the NASDAQ bubble to sit down and trade tech stocks um, for a company that I started and co-founded, which was basically a, a trading operation that was set up like a hedge fund within a day trading operations platform um, because the commissions were so cheap. But to make that story short, um, for 18 months, that was a battle to, to, you know, for the first nine months, it was pretty easy to make money. The next nine months, you know, the, the market knifing lower so aggressively made it really difficult for us to make money. And the company disbanded. We moved on from there. Um, but that's where I began sort of my career as an equity salesperson that was able to apply this knowledge that I had gained in commodities to the equity markets and sort of teach equity portfolio managers and traders what was going on in the commodity space. And, and I did that by writing a note in the morning and kind of talking about the macro world and what was going on in commodities and how it would relate to um, what would happen in equities. So that was fortunate to be, well, fortunate and unfortunate. Number one, unfortunate that I left Goldman Sachs um, at the beginning of a 10-year commodity super cycle, uh, because that would have certainly been a great seat to have. Mm. Um, and meanwhile, I had walked into this frying pan of the dot-com bubble that was bursting. Um, you know, so it was kind of twofold life lesson there that I, that I hold dearly to this day um, and, and literally helps me every day. But so, so from that side, I began a pretty, uh, I grew a pretty popular, um, a popular morning newsletter and a really profitable equity book of, you know, commission paying clients. And I had a really good run at a couple of good firms, and you know, one of which called Dolman Rose that I would still be at as a sales trader to this day. Um, had Cowan not bought them and kind of broke up the firm in a couple of different ways. But from there, I went on this pickup basketball phase of my career, which I kind of likened to playing pickup basketball in a playground because I went to three different firms in three different years trying to bring my book of equity business with me. And did nothing but, you know, have to have bouts with managers to, you know, about my pay scale and about my commissions, et cetera, et cetera. So what I decided to do was to, was to um, with, with the confidence of a lot, a lot of help um, and my network behind me was to launch my um, product as a standalone publication called The Morning Navigator, um, which I had branded and, and created, et cetera, et cetera. And I launched that on election, the day before election day, actually, on, um, I guess it was November 1st of 2016, yeah. with a very strong view that uh, Donald Trump was going to win the election and the world was going to change very dramatically. Mm. And so I happen to have been right with that prediction. And um, now we're back into another period of time where the commodity space looks like it's set up for a multi-year um, rally, you know, after being left for dead for such a long time. And the opportunity right now is, is both massive in the markets and important to your portfolio. Yeah. And I think that's probably where we should start, you know, branching out to uh, dig a little deeper. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I, I want to just kind of cover off TG Macro before we get into the, the great rotation, because um, I like to speak to founders of businesses uh, and ask them, you know, whether there was a eureka moment, one moment they can pinpoint um, 
and say, you know, that was the point at which my business, my venture truly took form. And that was the reason that I started, you know, TG Macro, whatever other business it might have been. Was there a moment like that for you or was it more of a gradual sort of evolution, I suppose? Well, you know, there was, there, you know, I, I guess there was, it, it was gradual and then sudden, I guess is a fair way to tell the story, mm. Hayden, if that's okay. You mm. know, the growth of my business was very, very slow when I first launched, you know, it takes a while to gain credibility and Real Vision, the platform helped me do that yeah. quite a bit. I, um, you know, I was able to put my ideas on there and get some exposure. So that helped gradually build my subscriber base from, you know, a pretty meager start of, you know, less than $100,000 worth of subscriptions on the day that I launched, um, you know, to now having over 800 professionals that subscribe to my note. But the, the eureka moment, to be quite honest with you, was just earlier this year when, um, with the guidance of some people that have helped me along the way, um, I launched a tweet that just basically was the first time that I ever solicited business to my TG Macro Twitter account from my TG Macro Twitter account. Mm. And it was just a very honest thread where I said, you know, it's my pinned tweet currently, so anybody can go see it at TG Macro. But it was basically a picture of me sitting on my desk and saying, you know, this is who I am. I'm, I'm obsessed with markets. You know, I write my, I try my best to write, you know, a, um, a solid newsletter every day. Um, you know, cover the markets, be fun to read, et cetera, et cetera. And I sink my heart and soul into it. And that thread, I, I asked a few people, relevant people on Twitter to retweet that for me, just to try to get it, you know, some more exposure. And to this day, that thread has gotten over a million impressions. Wow. Yeah, it, it got over a million impressions. It sold hundreds of newsletters. So hundreds of people took the chance and said, you know what, I'll, I'll give this guy a try. I like that honest approach. And, you know, sort of in a one week span, all of a sudden, you know, I went from having this, you know, a very slow moving, grinding type of growth path mm. to, to having a tsunami. And, and doing several quarters worth of sales in one week, mostly in one day. Wow. So, you know, that, that was definitely a eureka moment that, you know, there were people that wanted to hear more about this commodity story and, you know, were curious about, you know, the fact that I would constantly tweet, um, you know, usually with imagery from the big Lebowski that energy is rallying. Mm. And, you know, and I'm talking about at $25 and $35 and $55 in WTI on the way up um, from the post lockdown low. So yeah, that, that I think for me has been one, um, one moment where everything came together, yeah. where yeah. my method, my method of following the markets that I created and sort of groomed over the last four or five years, started really sending off signals during the lockdown in commodities and when they started coming out of the lockdown lows. And that was a bull market that I was able to jump on early, give my subscribers and clients a really good heads up on what was coming, turn out to be right, you know, have a big wave of credibility, follow that, and then launch this tweet that materially affected my business. So I guess that kind of fits into the to the box of that question that you ask. Yeah, that's yeah. Fair. I know absolutely. I think that's a, a perfect example of a kind of eureka moment and a, and a one point in time which really kind of sparked the the future and the evolution of your business. And um, 
you mentioned your method there. How would you characterize your method, your approach to market analysis? What do you think sets it apart? You know, there's a lot of newsletters and peers in this space. What do you think differentiates your analysis? Well, I feel like I've come up with a fairly useful method of making markets transparent to me. And the method is very much about watching the market performance and letting the market tell me what's going on and why. Right. So whereas Hayden, whereas I would start out, you know, back in, call it the 90s when I was in my 20s, you know, as a trader, I would say, okay, here's my view on the world. I've read all these books. I read all the newspapers. I read every headline. This is what I think should happen. I would put the positions on where I thought the world was wrong, and I would wait for the world to sort of conform to my view Mm. because my view was so informed and so intelligent that eventually the world would see it my way Mm -hmm. and the trades that I put on would make money. Yeah. So once I got tired of losing money and figuring out a strategy of letting the markets tell me what's going on, really all my method is, is measuring the performance of securities across every time frame there is. Mm. So meaning on a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual basis, I have about 25 macro securities and about 40 or 50 ETFs that I follow. Um, you know, and when you when you clock performance and you use evidence as your basis to, to talk about what's driving markets and not conjecture, yeah. you realize that you start to develop a really keen view on what's going on and that those things that you're talking about that are happening, where you're spotting large magnitude moves and trends beginning with really powerful technical overlays, those things turned out to trend for a long time. And those trades tend to be right if you're able to identify them and jump into them, right? So I'm, I'm just constantly trying to follow trends, identify what's trending from the bottom left to the top right-hand corner of my screen and find the most opportunistic moments technically and considering sentiment to jump into those trades. And with, you know, now with 30 years of experience of watching the tape and, you know, um, stubbing my toe and making mistakes and and doing it wrong, Mm. finally departing all of my other responsibilities in terms of generating compensation as a salesperson or as a sales trader and focusing only on this methodology of trading, my trading performance has exploded and I've gotten the markets more correct more often than I ever have. Yeah, fantastic. And, and that, that kind of level of analysis and, and transparency that you mentioned earlier is, is very evident within the newsletter that comes across, uh, you know, when I was reading a few examples before the call. And I, I wonder then, you know, if people were thinking, you know, they're suitably convinced and they want to sign up, but kind of wondering what exactly they should expect from that morning newsletter. Is it about setting them up for that particular trading day or is it, does it take a longer time horizon and a longer term approach than that? How would you characterize it? Yeah. All right. So the, you know, the, the navigator started off the genesis of it was really from my experience on trading floors, where in the mornings, your engagement at work was very social mm. and it was very out. It had to be very outgoing and animated. To the point that you know you, what you wanted to be doing was talking to everybody that you could, right? That was in the markets, that sees flow, that sees customer business, that sees 
you know, that has technical views and, you know, your kind of whole trading day would be rounded by the conversations that you had in the morning with people about markets. And the beautiful thing about working on the floor was that nobody's got time for bullshit and everybody is really, really focused on their trade. Yeah minutia of their trade. So when you bumped into a guy in the morning, your information exchange may have been 90 seconds long, but both traders probably walked away with three really important data points that they hadn't been watching that day. Yeah. Right. And so all of a sudden your world was, oh man, I got to talk to more people and, and really understand what's going on. So the morning navigator tries to be a little bit of that conversation through my eyes as to you know, what are the things that are really, really important that just came out that are driving the tape today that fit in with the theme of the way the tape is being driven on a secular basis now and sort of the importance. And this is something that I really would like to highlight to your listeners, the dramatic importance of having your portfolio aligned with what is going on and what is likely to continue. Yeah. And I, I read, as I say, a couple of sample newsletters on your website and, and one that was published in February uh, this year, I believe, covered, yeah, it was this year, you know, it covered the bullish uptrend we saw in the oil price. But not only that, you then seamlessly, I felt, linked it with Joe Rogan's interview with Jordan Peterson that had uh, discussed increasing energy costs. And just the way you linked market data and popular culture, as I say, I felt was really seamless and, and kind of made it more relatable, more relevant to the daily lives of, of people reading. Is that the sort of thing people should expect reading your newsletter? Well, you've just, Hayden, you've just unlocked what people have called my superpower. <laughs> you've methodically just unwound the morning navigator genesis conversation that I had, you know, six years ago with one of my most important clients and one of my longest sort of market conciliaries and friends in the market. And, you know, the push that I got to sort of say, all right, you know what, screw this, I'm going to take the chance and launch this newsletter was because, you know, he said, look, you know, your, your ability to follow markets is one thing. Um, your ability as a writer to put it all together and, you know, see the overlay of what's going on in the world, like, you know, you just give off the appearance that you consume every piece of relevant content out there and you don't miss a freaking thing. And somehow, you know, you can go from talking about the commodity markets to the world to the, you know, this thing what happened on the Grammys last night and understand that it's all the same story. So that is very much part of a narrative that I find useful in markets that I'm trying to become, quite honestly, is, um, you know, and, that, and that's from, you know, reading um, and, and consuming things, you know, by people that write like Grant Williams and Jared Dillian that just have these awesome 30,000 foot up perspectives on the world because they've been watching shit happen for so long, you know, and, and, and how markets react and how um, sentiment shifts dramatically and things like that. So that, that is definitely what I'm trying to convey every day, um, you know, is to try to be true to that superpower that I literally start typing the note is to be true to that idea. Yeah. Okay. So, so well, well done. Well done <laughs> in observing it organically. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. No, well, it, it comes across. I felt it was pretty evident in the samples I read. So yeah, that's fantastic. Very cool. Yeah. And then I'd sort of give it a push culturally with the study break at the end yes. that sometimes tie all that stuff in. So 
we have a human side too, right? Aiden? Yeah, well, absolutely. And uh, what we'll do is we'll put a link to that newsletter within the episode description so people can find it easily. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. And now let's return to the Great Rotation. We, we teased it at the top of the episode, uh, so let's turn our minds to that theme now. Um, you called the rotation uh, again when I was doing my research before the call. I believe in March 2020, you exited out of tech completely, as far as I could tell, allocating all your capital to natural resources and hard assets like you mentioned earlier. You know, you weren't in the majority doing that. I think that's fair to say. What do you think you spotted that others missed? Well, um, you know, I'm a commodity trader at heart, and I am deeply entrenched in a lot of energy networks, right? Like the people that I speak to are a lot of former floor traders, former institutional commodity traders, former hedge fund managers, et cetera, et cetera. So I like to think that I am well plugged into you know what's going on in the energy markets then when i started getting the overlay of what i call batshit crazy sentiment signals it it started to become obvious that sort of you know we had reached the worst point of the commodity sell off number 1 and then once you saw what the fed's response to the de-risking was which was to double their balance sheet to me, that was like a confirmation of everything I was seeing coming together and a great opportunity to say, it's super early here. I'm about to step on the gas. Yeah. Right. So some of those batshit crazy sentiment stories were, if you remember, when oil went negative, you know, in quotes. And I call it in quotes because, you know, that was a one-off situation that happened when global economies were locked down. And refineries and other sort of end users of barrels of crude oil were just in the unfortunate timing predicament of having more crude oil delivered to them than they were refining and having purchased from them. So what happened was there was just one giant sort of supply buildup that I knew would eventually get cleared out that caused um, oil merchants to have to pay people to take cargoes off their hands because of this once in a lifetime thing. So when I started getting phone calls from people that were saying like, you know, TG, let me get this straight now. Oil is going negative. So when I go fill up my truck soon, I'm going to get a tank of gas and they're going to, they're going to what credit me or pay me, (laughs) you know, cash. And I was like, Oh my God, like, you know, there, this is how dramatic the misunderstanding of this event is in the you know in the public eye due to the media's um, you know coverage of it and and perception of it etc and people really think that this is some like you know newfound you know lasting phenomenon where energy is going to be free right and this is you know th- these are among the stories that you're saying to a guy like me that is you know looking at this opportunity like a once in a lifetime you know, opportunity against a set of really, really trying mental circumstances. If you remember, you know, while that trade was going on, it was a lot tougher to keep a clear head about what was happening with COVID and what was happening with lockdowns and restrictions, et cetera, which made that trade a lot more difficult. But once you saw the light of the misunderstanding level in the markets, it became 
a little bit more obvious. Another thing um, that happened was I called up somebody at um, an energy desk and I said, is, you know, while, while crude oil was still in the single digits or, or the tens or teens, I asked if somebody would quote me a price for my lifetime supply of gasoline, you know, based on the price on the screens, which were like 30, 40 cents a gallon or something mm-hmm. like that. And they were like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, if I could calculate how much gasoline I'm going to use in my car for the next 20 years of my life, will you guys quote me a price for it? I want to buy it all, like buy it all right here from like from you in a derivative contract. Yeah. Like however, however many gallons I'm going to use for the rest of my life, I want to pay the price on the screen for it. And they were like, you know, you're the first person that's asked us to do that. No, we can't do that because there's not enough liquidity out this curve. But this is probably the way we should start thinking. Yeah. And so, you know, what, once you kind of looked at it from that perspective, or and, and I showed my clients from that perspective and said, look, no matter what happens with this energy transition, I'm willing to be long the fossil fuel at these prices, because if we're going to get that transition on the tape, we need tons of fossil fuel to burn, to pull the metal out of the ground to transport the metal wherever it needs to go, to get the metal built to the shape that it needs to be in and in the form that it needs to be in, we're not doing any of this without, you know, diesel fuel mm-hmm. and a lot of natural mm-hmm. gas. So anyway, that that's how that trade became, um, you know, w- w- with the constant pressure of the push to net zero as an overlay. And I think what finally, um, Hayden, the, the eureka moment for that trade was the fact that this time it's different in the commodity space because historically when commodities have rallied parabolically like they have now you know the solution to high prices has often been high prices whereby you can pivot to a producer and say you know we need more of this whatever you're producing that producer can kind of crank up production create additional supply especially at the higher price which will then at least satisfy demand and then work on lowering prices, right? That's been the natural sort of progression of events when individual commodities have spiked off. Now, what's different this time is two things. First, all of the commodities are being affected by this. So they're all um, sort of under this sort of net zero spell. And number two, there is currently due to the push for carbon neutral and net zero, a massive attack on supply, starting in the energy patch where we're making investment difficult, we're canceling pipelines, we're canceling leases on on, on um, federal lands, and we're making it a lot more difficult to get oil out of the ground. So now with this attack on supply, we're in a situation where even when what I call, you know, batshit crazy U.S. energy policy gets politically turned around one day. Yeah. It's going to be years before the effects can be felt at the pump, you know, because we're sort of doing structural damage to the energy markets. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, with with this, you know, one of the good charts that I like to reference, Hayden, um, to look at that is um, the chart of drilled but uncompleted wells. Mm. Right. Those those are we call the ducks in the business, um, drilled but uncompleted wells, DUCs. Um, Those are the wells that oil majors keep on hand when they need to increase production, they can wheel a rig over to stick the rig into the well and the well can start producing oil as soon as it's plugged in. 
So now, because it's becoming more financially difficult to carry that resource or asset on your books, the number of drilled but uncompleted wells is collapsing. And that's bad because when we go to reverse this, to tap the energy that we have naturally supplied, it's going to take years before we redig the wells. Yeah. Right. So we've got a couple of different drags on the recovery. Even once we get that in place, I don't even feel like politically we've gotten to the point where we're transitioning away from anything net zero yet, even with the uh, energy disasters that have gone on and sort of continue to take place with Europe being, you know, under, um, undersourced with natural gas on inventory, you know, well below their five year averages by design as they sort of, you know, offload the natural gas industry. And now all of a sudden they're going to have to buy their natural gas from Russia in rubles, Mm. you know, and if they don't have storage on hand, any kind of spike in, you know, need for baseload power is going to cause a major, major stress on their electric grids. And, you know, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road, where, you know, the, the, the mom and pop at home may be all for plugging in their Tesla, but they may not be for having no air conditioning for months at a time on the way. Mm. Yeah. And does that mean, I mean, there's so many headwinds there that point to this being, you know, at least a medium term trend, possibly a long term one. How do we approach giving this trade, this theme a time horizon? Uh, is it, for example relevant until that kind of carbon transition story and narrative's gone away like how would you how would you time horizon this particular theme yeah i do unfortunately have it very real time linked to our ability to drive net zero mm. if that's fair mm. right like when you know currently last week what i really tried to write about was that i saw more upside still in the energy markets because I continue to see political gaslighting from, you know, the likes of our very own um, appointed czar to climate transition or whatever John Kerry's title is. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're seeing very obvious, very well-defined and publicly understood inflation. And lo- a lot of it is obviously in the energy space, which is then spilling over into the grains and food space because a third of the grains cost of getting the food out of the ground, off the farm, into the store is at least a third of energy. So now we've got the consumer that's wildly um, aware of the increase in the cost of the grocery bill at the gas station. And then you've still got John Kerry coming out and saying, we've got to transition to carbon neutral five times faster than we've been going. And we've got to get on electric vehicles 20 times faster than we thought we were. And you're like, wow, there's a disconnect, right? There, there is a, there is, you know, a, a politician offering platitudes that is just going to be in for a fight for his life against physics, you know, during this whole entire um, attempted pivot to net zero. And until until somebody tries to slow down that freight train, energy prices are going to keep going higher, just because we are um, on par with sort of the inflationary levels we've seen in the '80s does not mean that these inflationary levels are going to stop here, especially because there was no such attack on supply in the 80s. Yeah. So this is a very different animal. Yeah, got it. Okay. We'll we'll have a lot of stock market investors listening in. What do you think this 
trend or theme means for the composition of major stock market indices because it seems to me that the logical conclusion of something like this means that the the largest weightings within those indices will transition to companies that relate to this theme rather than the kind of the big tech stocks and things like that what's your kind of take on that i suppose you nailed it again he you know you're doing your homework and you've got this right um you know, what I've been advising clients and I'm, and I'm proud to have advised them with the NASDAQ at the highs is that you should really think about parting with your precious technology stocks mm. that have been so good to your portfolio and the performance of which you have become so addicted to that you think that it's going to continue ad infinitum. And I have to strongly urge and, and did strongly urge my subscribers that it's easy to prove that the world has dramatically changed since you invested in these tech companies, right? Since, since it was so smart to own Apple and Facebook was so fun to be on and Google search was so helpful to find things, right? The world has changed dramatically. And so when I look at things like PPI in the teens here in the US, Mm. And I look at PPI in the teens in the 80s, that's the reason that a lot of Wall Street banks are still behind this inflation story because they, as we get closer to peak inflation of the 80s, all the pencil pushers decide that's probably how high it can go, mm. right? And so they forget to take into account that it's different this time. They lag behind the inflation and next thing you know, we've still got an attack on supply. We've got commodities trading at all-time highs. We've got record inflation biting around the world. And instead of having Fed funds at 12%, like we had in the 80s, that eventually knocked the inflation to its knees, we've got Fed funds at 75 basis points. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I feel like that's kind of the illustration there, Hayden, of how, how dramatically central banks, or at least the Federal Reserve, and, and obviously the others are guilty, are behind the curve because they too have been programmed for this decade or so of deflation. You know, if you remember right before all this deflation caught fire, you know, all we heard from Jerome Powell was, you know, we're shooting for that 2% CPI target, you know, and God damn it, one day we're going to get there, <laughs> right? Well, well, all of a sudden we're at 8% CPI and he hasn't even reacted yet. Yeah. Right. Or, or, you know, that's being dramatic. But broadly speaking, I mean, 75 basis points versus t PPI in the teens. What are we doing here? We're, we're, we're not doing anything is what we're doing. We're not doing anything to stop inflation or, you know, commodity inflation or commodity speculation or anything like that. So that's why I dramatically urged all my clients to part with their technology stocks first, raise cash and stare at it second, third, Try taking me up on this natural resources stuff because this to me is going to be the stuff that starts with, you know, eye gouging performance um, like we've seen in technology. And you're absolutely right that that is going to change the constitution of the S&P quite simply. You know, at the end of 2021, technology was 27%, I think, of the S&P, obviously due to the booming trillion dollar market caps of Apple and Google and Microsoft and all that. Um, and the energy sector was three and a half percent. So the great rotation is very much a belief that the energy sector is going to dramatically rise in relevance as the tech sector 
you know, dramatically falters, which I can point to evidence of that, that it is and will continue to all over the tape, you know, that that's very much the next leg of the great rotation, you know, and we're well off of the lows um, in the sort of uh, natural resources side of the trade, which I, which I can bottle up into a couple of ETFs for you if you're interested in hearing. But um, yeah, it still seems like the backwardation, which shows how tight commodities are in terms of tightness of supply, I don't see what's going to change that anytime soon. So what I've been guiding my clients into is a sort of trifecta of um, three natural resources ETFs that I've chosen, which are XOP, which is oil and gas. Um, it's got plenty of natural gas producers in it, which is why I chose that over XLE. Mm. Um, and it's also got um, some refiners in it, which I think are set up better now to be profitable than they were with oil at 40 or $50. So this is a sort of new phenomenon where the refiners are massively profitable because there's been no demand destruction what's called crack spreads have blown out to historic levels where refiners can afford to pay a lot more for a barrel of crude oil because they're able to turn that around and sell it for a very valuable barrel of jet fuel or diesel fuel. Mm. Um, So that's the sort of the two second setup in refiners that sort of just emerged and made them a really, really sort of dear subsector of the energy space. So that's um, the XOP wing of the butterfly, then I think XME is important, which is industrial metals and mining, another sector that's been left for dead over the years. And now you've got base metals heading towards historic highs with historically low inventories and a full push to net zero. Mm -hmm. And covers the metal side of that trade. The last leg is an uh, ETF called IGE, which is specifically a natural resources ETF. Um, I like it because it's U.S. and Canadian oil producers. It's got refineries in it. It's got basic materials companies in it. It's got some finished goods companies in it. And I think that these are the companies that are going to be set up to have their margin expand and do very well over the next you know, period of years, if that's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to finish on some actionable sort of investment ideas, the companies that are likely to perform or that are positioned well, I suppose, to outperform within the new market environment that you're describing. So I think there's a perfect juncture to end the main body of the interview, but I want to finish with our quick fire questions. So this is a more generic list of questions, not tailored to you specifically, but just a lighthearted way to end the episode. Um, Feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word. The first question is, what is the most frequent mistake investors make, do you think? I think it's marrying their view, right? Like it's, 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 mar- it's marrying their view and marrying their portfolio. Mm. In a word, you know, it's very much whereby I've, I fielded so many questions, so many calls from retail subscribers that I took the time to get on the phone with because here I am writing and shooting down their favorite tech names. Their favorite tech names have only fallen a little bit from the highs, yet I'm telling them to get out of them. And so um, you know, I would take every phone call that anybody questioned me on because I wanted to get the point through to them that if rates go higher, which they likely will due to the commodity move, then um, 
things are going to change for the technology sector. So they were kind of married to that view. Yeah, got it. Uh, question two, uh, and, and actually just on that insight, I think we, you know, as a content provider and publisher, we speak to our subscribers as much as we can, and and that's certainly something that has been evident uh, when we've had conversation with, conversations with them. I mentioned that we were testing our app before the call, and they've talked about the calls and the tech names that they're invested in, and that almost emotional uh, link that they have to some of the trades that they've been in for the past sort of five, even 10 years is one that's hard to, hard to discuss logically even sometimes. So yeah, um, yeah I can imagine what those phone calls would have been like. Um, and, and yeah, fantastic that you gave, gave them that time because I, th- I think some people really need it. Yeah. They, they don't, they don't, it's, it's very difficult to sell something that you've owned for a long time when it pulls back from its high watermark and you know what it's worth at its high watermark. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, the everyday Joe six pack investor does not know how to part with that. No, no. Yeah. Completely agree. Okay. Question two, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read any specific publishers, for example? Grant Williams, every single thing that he publishes, writes, records, uh, broadcasts, everything that he does is super important to me. Um, Doomberg is also another really, really important resource. He's the sort of science side to this um, energy trade. You know, his big theme is energy is life. And that is a great way to boil this down. Um, you know, an attack on energy supply is an attack on civilization. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important angle to sort of have in the back of your head as to how this is taking place. So those are the two very um, most basic, you know, uh, content providers that I consume the most of. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I listen to Grant Williams podcast actually. Yeah. It's really, it's really fantastic. I definitely recommend it. Um, question three, what is the most memorable moment from your career today? And this is often hard to pick just one, but is there a particular moment that just stands out? It could be a, a positive one, a negative one. What, what springs to mind? Yeah, I'll, I will. Uh, there's one thing that, uh, one thing that happened when I was trading, you know, in the sort of dot-com burst that was a, a bubble moment to me that I like to share with people um, was, you know, this is with the NASDAQ at, you know, still pretty high levels, you know, 4,000 something on its way down. Mm. And we were in, in our trading operation, tons of people were really, really bullish, you know, buying the dip in technology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I got a phone call from a friend of mine that says, Dude, you know, it was a day the market was down big, but it was early on. And he was like, I just got what's called apparently a house call on my, you know, favorite tech stock. And I was like, a house call? I was like, what does that mean? And he goes, well, they sold the stock. You know, they, he, had, he was long and on margin mm. and the stock had gone up, up and up. And all of a sudden the stock is coming down now. So rather than ask this particular friend slash client for a check, the clearinghouse or a prime broker was just selling the stock. Wow. And so that was like a light bulb moment for me where I was like, oh my God, he was really, really levered. So he was the first guy out, right? He was the first guy that these investment banks are starting to just house call, mm. meaning wipe out of their positions without checking because everybody is so levered up in here. So we managed to sort of, you know, change our book around, change our view around. And sort of over the next several months, make a lot of money on the short side as, you know, more and more house calls clicked in and the retail investor got totally rinsed on the downside of the dot-com bubble. But, 
you know, that was one thing that saved our lives because we were very much in the dip buying mode. And, you know, I, I went over there to trade technology and ride the NASDAQ to the sky. Yeah. And I, I always, you know, that's one of the good stories. Uh, but I always remember that as something that was like a wow, like if my friend didn't call me with that sort of question, you know, looking for information, he was curious, something dramatic had happened. He didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I was like, brother, you don't have anything to do. Your stock is gone. You better stare at whatever cash you have left and thank God you made it out alive. Yeah. And you know, and then the thing just got eviscerated from there, but it helped us stay out of the way. So that was one memorable moment. Yeah, yeah. Completely see why that would live long in the memory. Um, yeah, totally. Penultimate question. Um, if you could go back in time and give yourself one bit of advice, what do you think it would be? You know, I, I lost so much money over the years, the way I told you before, mm. Hayden, was you know, putting my views on and having the world conform, waiting for the world to conform to those views. Um, if I could, you know, put some, smack some sense into my younger self, um, you know, and figured out how to let markets lead the way and how to let them tell you what's going on and so that you can position accordingly. You know, rather than you always fading everything that moves and, and thinking every move is, you know, has a reversion to the mean coming, you know, that, that kind of thing helps you, you know, th- this kind of performance watching and evidence-based investing helps you stay in trends. Um, whereas the difference would be, you know, if you're, you know, you kind of, you, you, when you expect the world to change toward what you think it should look like, that becomes a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Completely see what you mean. Yeah, I don't know if I said that, I don't know if I said it the right way, but that's that's I think an important thing to. Observe. No, yeah, I think you did, and and we touched on it in the main body of the interview as well. So I think that's definitely come across. Um, and the final question, I suppose, is the opto question. We, we want to speak to people that you know ideally outperforming benchmarks, but at the very least, doing something different from what the majority of their peers are doing within the market. Um, and that's why we asked them, what is an investor's best source of alpha? If you had to narrow it down to one thing. Um. Okay, so for me, per, and this is very personal, I think probably related to the strategy that I've developed, but my personal best mechanism to outperform markets is having um, the ability to identify a trend and mm-hmm. to know when it's right to be hair-raising long in that trend and when it's right to be downsized to nearly flat within that trend. Yeah. And so when I started off with one trend in energy and been focused on that, um, I've been able to lend that idea to several other trends in the markets, like, you know, when as metals have joined the reinflation chorus and as the ag space has joined the inflation chorus, I basically applied the same sort of science of, you know, okay, is this is the time, you know, now it's into support. I want to add and get big because I believe in this trade. Right. And then all of a sudden the market proves you right and rallies and it gets 20% away from its moving averages, which is historic. And you say, okay, the market's proving me to be so right right now, but I have to be a trader. Being a trader entails making sales and being less long now, right? And at the times when the ducks are quacking and the retail trade is buying into it. And that's when you have to say, yeah, this is when I sell it to you so that I can get hair raisingly long again when the next dip comes. Yeah. So I think, you know, being able to manage that within the context of staying with the trend, that that's where all of my overperformance comes from. And, and it's usually just identifying one trend and knowing when to be big and not big. Yeah. 
Absolutely. No, and I think that's a great insight and message to end the podcast on. And that just leads me to say thank you very much, Tony, for joining us on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, you're very welcome. Hey, you did a great job. You were the most prepared of anyone I did a podcast with. And I think the results are, are going to speak accordingly. That was really well done. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports, or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. Co-fruition.